Okay, we'll start. Uh, we're on the second of three uh, classes or three courses we had on Master Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. We finished the uh, first half of the second course on it. Remember the second course was treating the three perfections of, uh, what were they? Patience, uh, joyful effort, and meditation. Um, just a little touch more about joyful effort, okay? And there's a question that comes up here. Last time we said that uh, it consists of having a good time about doing good things. And I want to talk a little bit about Paksam Nambak. Say Paksam Nambak. Namdak. Uh, Namdak is like the ultimate expression of joyful effort. Um, and it comes just short of bodhicitta. It's the last step you reach just before you get to ultimate compassion. Okay? So it's a very special idea. Um, it means personal responsibility. Taking personal responsibility. And mainly it's manifested in, in the following. Uh, it's a kind of joyful effort where you're willing to continue your virtuous activities even if nobody else helps you. Okay? So this is the main feature of Vaksam Namba. Uh, I may be crazy, okay? But if I'm the only person in the world who cares about these things, I'm still going to do it. Okay? And I think you'll find, uh, as you get higher and higher in your practice, uh, by definition, we're in the desire realm. In the desire realm, everybody's crazy. You can't get here unless you're crazy, okay? The mental afflictions to be born into the desire realm are the worst of all. You see what I mean? If you're here, it's a, it's a badge of honor. Okay, if you're in the desire realm, which is which you are, if you are who you seem to be, which I don't know, okay, but if you made it to this realm as a normal person, uh, you got here by virtue of having a whole uh, galaxy of mental afflictions uh, that are the cause to be born here. See, what I mean, so we're in a crazy realm. Sometimes I refer to it as a broken realm. Broken meaning. It doesn't matter how much you try to adjust this realm. You can do a different exercise program. You can change your vitamins. You can use different cosmetics. You can wear different clothes. You can get more sleep or get less sleep or get a better job or get a worse job or have a bigger apartment or a smaller apartment or move to New Jersey or stay in New York. It doesn't matter. Nothing works. Okay? It won't work. Adjust you always have in the back of your mind that you could make some kind of adjustment and then living in this realm would be okay. You know, like, if I just had a few more hours or if I just did a little more exercise or if I could just control my eating habits or something like that, you always, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, one more adjustment, adjustment in my wife or husband or house or job, then I would be happy. Forget it, okay? It's a broken realm. Those things don't work. And if you're here, it's because basically your mind is crazy, okay? Uh, with certain mental afflictions, 26, you know, 
main ones, 84,000 variations, all right? And uh, that's how you got here. So it's natural that in trying to, you know, do dharma, do meditation, do practice, if you move one degree out of normal, you're going to look weird to everybody else. You see what I mean? And by the time you're 10 degrees out of normal, you're going to look downright crazy or, or something to other people. You'll, because you've gotten rid of 1% of your mental afflictions, which, by the way, n almost nobody can do. To change your mind really by 1%, to remove 1% of your mental afflictions is, is extremely rare. Uh, and, and that shifting of 1% would make you seem strange to everybody else in the world, okay? So, you have to, by definition, be willing to do your virtues uh, on your own. And every Buddhist, I think American Buddhists, more than other Asian Buddhists, are aware of that. You see, to be a Buddhist in America, uh, to hold the worldview of a Buddhist, you're different. And it's a little bit hard, and there's some pressure on it. And the ability and the decision and the willingness to stick to it, even if it seems crazy to other people, is, is part of your practice. That's called Paksam Nandan. I personally take responsibility for the following things, and if nobody helps me, it's okay. And if they attack me for it, it's okay. And if they crucify me for it or something, it's okay. Because I know it's the right thing to do. See, I mean, that's Vasam Namdak. Vasam Namdak means, and Master Shanti Deva says, um, don't be upset if other people don't help you because they don't know how to help themselves. So why do you think they should be helping you? You see, I mean, 99% of the people on this planet are striving like madmen for things that can't make them happy. You know, house, family, food, money, things like that. You need a moderate amount to practice, but to base your life on, the, on, the, on, on trying to get those things is, is innately crazy, because you can't. And you, you can't keep them, even if you do get them. A, you almost can't get them. B, if you do get them, you're going to die anyway. It's, so that's crazy. You see what I mean? So if the, if the vast majority of people in your country or your city or your neighborhood are still trying to get those things and they don't feel any urge to help you with Dharma activities, Master Shadi Deva says, just chill out, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, that's the way it is. Because they're in the desire realm. That's how they, they got here by thinking that way. So don't feel upset. They don't even know how to take care of themselves. So why do you think they're going to help you in your Dharma activities? You see what I mean? So they don't even know what to do for 10 minutes to help themselves. So why get upset if, if you can't raise support for your newest Dharma activities? See what I mean? So don't, you know, don't get upset. Just keep going. Just keep doing it. That's why I'm done. Okay? The decision, final decision that I will get to the goals of this path by hook or crook, whether anybody helps me or not. In fact, towards the end, they won't help you. They'll, they'll block you. And then you say, okay, I'll just go around, you know, and for, to help you, you see what I mean? <laughs> to help them, you see what I mean? And uh, that's Pasam Namdak. Don't be surprised that people won't help you because they can't even, they don't even know how to help themselves for five minutes, okay? And then just be happy and, and do your joyful effort, okay? And don't, uh, 
don't say things, don't be bitter. I mean, you see a lot of Dharma people who get bitter after 10 years of trying to run a center and nobody's helping them. And, you know, don't, get, don't be like that. Joyfully give your life and, and understand that you're doing the right thing. And don't expect too much out of other people because they wouldn't be in this realm if they weren't crazy, okay? They don't even know how to take care of themselves. They're going to die helplessly with no idea of what to do about it uh, by the, the very behavior that everyone is doing all day long. So don't feel discouraged that they don't have enough sense to help you because they don't have enough sense to even meditate for five minutes a day. You know, you have to twist their arms to get them to meditate for 15 minutes a day. You can't take care of themselves. So don't be surprised if they don't want to take care of anybody else either. All right? That's part of Hassan Uh I wanted to talk about meditation. And uh, to me, there are three types of meditation to be spoken about. Okay? One is the meditation you undertake in a meditation session. The second subject is how you live the rest of your day, which affects your meditation. And then finally, what you should meditate about. Okay? So what order should we do them in? Let's see. Okay, so I'm going to do those three things. What should you do during a meditation session? Why is it important to have deep meditation sessions? Secondly, what kind of behavior do you have to engage in the rest of the day to have good meditation? And then finally, what are you going to meditate about? All right. So, let's start with the sessions. Say, Michome. Chok is an ancient, ancient, ancient word. It doesn't come anywhere, okay? It means to have time to do something. In modern Tibetan, we say komba. Kongudwe means do you have time to do, to do that. You say kongudu, I ain't got any time at all, okay? Michok means don't have time. Michok me means it's not true that you don't have time, okay? Uh, this is the name of a certain meditative state. Okay, it's called Samden Dambu Nyerdo Micho Me. Say Samden Dambu Nyerdo Micho Me. Okay. Samden Dambu is uh, a kind of deep meditation that you can get into, which, if you succeeded in just following that meditation, you would be born into the form realm in your next life, which is like a semi paradise, but the problem is it runs out. So it's not nirvana, and it's not a Buddha paradise. It's called the form realm, okay? So, if you did something dumbbell meditation, first meditative level meditation, all the time, in this lifetime, but with no virtuous content, you see what I mean? No Buddhist content. Like, if you just followed your breath for the rest of your life, you would be born into the form realm. And you would stay there for a certain number of years, then you'd die and go to hell realm, okay? It's a flow chart. It goes like that, and then it goes like that. Because you use up all your good karma being in that state, okay? So it's considered a very serious mistake in Buddhism, okay? Mishal Me is like that. Uh, but, if you want to see emptiness directly, you have to be able to get into Mishal Me and then use that meditative level to see emptiness directly, okay? So what I'm saying is that if you just did Mishal Me meditation, 
and followed your breath forever, you would be born into uh, like a form realm paradise and then you would die from there and go to a hell realm. Okay? Uh, why is it that it's so effective in getting to a mini paradise? Okay? Part of it is called Samtengi Domba. Say Samtengi Domba. Uh, this occurs in the Abhidhamma Kosha. But the point is, most of us throughout the day are having lousy thoughts about other people, jealousy, desire, anger, pride, competitive thoughts about other people all day long. Uh, every few minutes it bursts out in speech. Some kind of lousy speech. You know, I don't like him, I don't like him, I don't like him. Some complaining, whining, uh, up to angry speech, things like that. Uh, then uh, for every five minutes of speech, there might be 30 seconds of actually hitting somebody, uh, undergoing, you know, doing some kind of business deal to screw somebody or something like that, you know. So most of us spend the day having maybe 70% negative thoughts, small ones. Okay? It's not, they say, uh, it's not uh, killing a man and pulling him off his horse in Tibetan, they say. It's small irritations, small jealousies, small desires, small uh, irritations at other people. And over the course of a day, there are thousands and thousands of those kinds of thoughts. Then uh, they manifest themselves in what you say, and then occasionally in violent behavior. If you're sitting in meditation all day long, or if you're sitting in meditation for five, six hours a day, what happens? It's like unbelievable, uh, refreshing state because by, by, what do you call it? Mm. <coughs> by default, not by any great effort of your own, you don't have time to think about how much you hate other people. Or, you see, you can't stay in meditation if you're thinking bad thoughts. You pop out. Like the minute you feel jealous about somebody, you pop out in meditation. If you can learn to stay in meditation, then at least you wouldn't have those five or six hours of bad thoughts that you usually have. By virtue of that, you could get yourself born into a form realm paradise. You see what I mean? It's just by default. It's not by any good effort that you're doing. You just didn't have time to do all the bad deeds you usually do. Okay? So if you engage in that breathing meditation, for example, five, six hours a day, you would go to a form realm paradise. You would reach the first form realm level. After that, you go straight to a hell realm. So we think it's a mistake. You use up all that good karma. But anyway, that's the principle on which you get there. Um, still though, in a deep state of meditation, you have to be able to get into the first form realm level of meditation. Okay, why? Only from this particular slice of the meditative spectrum can you see emptiness directly. You must be able to get into a state of meditation where you shut off all sense perceptions, like somebody puts a french fries, McDonald's french fries in front of your nose, you don't smell them. Somebody plays Neil Young, you don't hear it. You see what I mean? Your meditation is so deep that you can't, you've withdrawn from sense perceptions. Okay, that's the goal of something Dambonyado Michome, okay? And, and only from that basis can you see emptiness directly, alright? By the way, most of you know there's five Buddhist paths, or five levels of realization. What you may not know is that to move from one to the other, the movement is always done in a deep state of meditation. You cannot get up to the next rung of the spiritual ladder except in a state of deep meditation. All movement between Tsokjor, uh, Tong, Gom, and Milok is done in a deep state of meditation. Okay? 
you have to be able to meditate. You have to be able to get into deep meditation. Otherwise, it's impossible to see emptiness directly. It'll never happen to you. So what happens if you don't see emptiness directly? If you do see emptiness directly, I mean, I've told you many times, I tell you again, you see your future life. You see the day of your enlightenment. You know that you have encountered the Dharmakaya of the Buddha. Uh, you, you know what tankas are. You know what prostration is. You can read other people's minds for some period of time. Things like that. But imagine what it feels like to know and to have seen the day of your enlightenment and to know how long it's going to take. To know directly and to perceive it directly that all of this life that you've been living is over. You've understood the entire contents of 200,000 Buddhist books in 20 minutes and, and you've seen and you're on your way out. On your way out means stream enter, okay? You are irrevocably on your way out of this kind of life. You will be Tara. You will be Manjushri in a certain num number of years and you see it directly. So you wouldn't trade that experience for anything else. You wouldn't trade it for a million lifetimes of other experiences. To have that one 20 minute experience is worth all the thoughts you've ever had in your life. It's worth everything you've ever done in your life. And the only way you can get there is to be in a state of deep meditation. Okay? You must learn to get into that state of meditation. How long does it take to get there? You've got to practice at least an hour or two a day. And I'm not counting the preliminaries. Okay? Preliminaries take some people 10 minutes, they take other people 59 minutes. Okay? Not counting that. Not counting your sadhana, not counting anything, tundra, nothing else. In deep state, one-pointed meditation, at least an hour a day, preferably maybe two hours, or you cannot see emptiness directly. And you will continue to suffer, you will continue to die, you cannot get out of it. It's impossible. You must meditate. You must be able to get into something done when you're domain. And, and quite frankly, a place like Arizona is designed for that. The reason, you know, I had a big meeting with a sponsor tonight. They're like, I helped you start your store. I helped you start Godstow. Now you want another one? You know, and I'm like, you need it. And they're like, why? You know, and I said, you sit there. I mean, the people who went there, quite frankly, it's so quiet. It's so isolated. And you have absolutely nothing else to do because it's 50 miles to the nearest major grocery store, uh, you have to meditate and your mind is suddenly, you have nothing else to think about, you have nothing else to do, there is nothing else to do there, just meditate, totally, perfectly silent, nobody else around, you know, you can walk around naked for 20 miles, nobody will see you, you know what I mean, and that's the goal of that place, it forces you into a deep state of meditation and you must try it. I'm not trying to advertise, I'm not trying to sell, I'll be in retreat, I won't know where you are, but you better be there, okay? <laughs> no, because there, there's something about that kind of solitude, even in the ancient days in the Middle East, they understood that, the desert fathers, you know, people like that. You need a place like that. You must try in your life at some point, and now's the perfect time, right, to get into a place like that and give it a few months to reach this state of meditation. You must try. It's a life or death question. When you get old, it'll be too late. Okay? You'll be sitting there and saying, I wish I would have done it back when Geshe Michael did it. You know what I mean? And that's all. 
maybe you can get pretty good progress in New York City with an hour or two in the morning. Sooner or later, you're going to have to go out, junk your other part of your life, and, and concentrate on that one object. And, you know, I'm not saying you give up your other commitments. There's rules against that. You must honor your family commitments and your other commitments. But you must also fit in this somehow. You must make arrangements to see emptiness directly. Then you can come back and, and do your other stuff. I'm not saying you don't do it, but I, you must do it. You have to do it. You must learn to get into a deep state of meditation. I, I think it's extremely difficult in a, in, in a normal life situation. Okay? You've got to have total silence. You've got to have that wemba means you're out in a place where you just can't get to any distractions even if you want to. You see what I mean? They're not available and you just do it. You see what I mean? You must try to do that. Okay? You must try to do that. That's uh, getting into a deep state of meditation. And you cannot see emptiness directly and you cannot get out of this suffering if you don't. You will die. You will get old. All the stuff you think is important now will be meaningless the day you die. You know, I'm fighting for your time and the rest of your life is fighting for your time. And when the day comes that you die, you'll think it was really stupid that you spent any time on this one. Because there's nothing there that helps you when you die. You see what I mean? Take care of emptiness first, then you can come back and do that other stuff. Rather than vice versa. Just decide. Sooner or later you're going to do it. In the next three years. Okay? Deal? Mazal. Okay. <laughs> In the diamond business it's important to say mazal while the other party is like... Uh, you know, and, uh, and then they've already agreed and they can't go back on it. Okay. That's my sales pitch for uh, deep meditation. Now I'd like to go into a sales pitch for what you could call office samadhi. Okay? <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Arya Nagarjuna was adamant that meditation is not a one or two hour thing a day. It's a 24 hour undertaking. Okay? In other words... If, if you allow yourself certain distractions for 23 hours a day and then try to meditate for an hour, it cannot work. You will not succeed. It's impossible. There's a certain state of mind that you have to maintain 24 hours a day to be able to meditate for one hour a day. You know? You see, you cannot turn off the rest of the world for one hour a day and then for 23 hours a day, abuse your mind, okay? You have to be kind to your mind all day long, and then when you ask him to meditate, he'll say, oh, I'm fresh, I can do that, okay? And I want to just go over, there's five principles that Aryana Garjana stated for keeping yourself basically in sort of a half samadhi all day long, okay? And, and the opening verses of of the Guides of the Bodhisattva's Way of Life in the chapter on meditation say whosoever cannot keep some kind of samadhi going all day has their head in, in the mouth of a monster with fangs and he's about to get crushed. You see, I mean, uh, mean nyomoseki, staying in the... It's, you got to get this vision of a lion's mouth it's open, and your head is in there, and the teeth are like that. Meaning, if you don't keep a basic samadhi 24 hours a day, 
you are in a dangerous spot. Okay, what is the lion? What is the teeth? It's mental afflictions. Okay, you have to be in a state of like 50% samadhi all day long or you are vulnerable to klesha attacks, to mental affliction attacks. Okay, if you're not in some kind of mellow state almost all day long, you will have some mental afflictions. Okay? You see this when we travel, we get them when you're jet lagged, when you're tired, when you didn't have enough to eat, you know, when your mind, when your meditative immune system is low, then you're totally at the mercy of your mental afflictions. You know, like it takes two minutes to get angry. You can't put up any kind of a fight, you can't put up any kind of resistance because your mind state is already weak. You see what I mean? So the point is, don't just think of meditation as a deep session in which you try to see emptiness. Meditation has to be maintained all day long. And Arya Nagarjuna had five tricks for it. Okay, here they are. I like them. Uh, say, good. Okay. He links these two together. He, he dumps these two together. It's really two separate states of mind. Okay? Gopa you can define or you can translate as restless desire. Okay? It's a restless state of mind. It destroys your meditation. In a state of meditation, it manifests itself as thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon. Okay? It's like, so many people go into a month-long retreat and come out and tell me about the new business they're going to start. You know, including me, okay? Uh, that's gopa. Gopa means your mind jumps from desire object to desire object. Now, when you read desire object in a, in a scripture, you think of Playboy magazine or something. It's not like that. It means, what are you going to do this afternoon? Who do you have to call? You know, what newspaper are you going to read? Uh, magazines, TV shows, and during the day for the other 23 hours, it manifests itself as attention deficiency disorder or whatever. You know, you can only stay on an object for about seven minutes. You know, you're surfing through the channels, you're surfing through the internet, you're picking up a novel, then you're picking up a magazine, then you're picking up a newspaper, then you've got to go outside, then you've got to come back, then you've got to have a coffee, and then you've got to... It's this thing about seven-minute attention span for anything. If you do that for 23 hours and then you try to sit down and meditate, forget it. Okay, so gupa is the constant skipping from something that attracts you to something else that attracts you. It is channel surfing all day long in your life, with your life. Okay? You can't concentrate on something for more than seven minutes. Then you're on to something else. Okay? That's gupa. It's a... It's a restless kind of mind. It's the inability to keep your mind on one thing for more than a few minutes. It's skipping from attractive object to attractive office, uh, object. It's sitting at the bus station and looking at girl after girl after girl. You know what I mean? And there's just a point where it just destroys your concentration. And then the next morning when you try to meditate, you can't figure out why nothing's happening. You see what I mean? Because you've abused your mind for 23 hours. Okay? You've got to take care of your mind the whole the whole time you're out of meditation, or you won't be able to meditate, okay? Second one here, which is the second half of the first one, right, is called gyapa, okay, gyapa. 
Gilpa normally means regret uh, about having done something wrong or something like that. But in this context, in Nagarjuna's work, Arya Nagarjuna's work, it refers to thinking about the good old days and thinking about how nice things would be in about a week or next year or something like that. It's an inability to Baba Ram Das, be here now. Okay? It's the inability to live in the present. Okay? I think it gets worse as you get older. Like when you meet people in a nursing home, it's very common to that they can only talk about the good old days. You know, I had this girlfriend, I had this wife, I had this job, I had this power, I had this authority, my body wasn't always like this. And their mind is constantly in the past. You see what I mean? I think most of us get it for high school and half, first half of college. You know, you, 20 years later, you're still thinking about how good it was when Janis Joplin was alive and Hendrix was still playing and hadn't gotten boring yet and Jim Morrison hadn't died in the bathtub, you know, and, and you're still remembering the good old days. You see what I mean? And you have this inability to say, look, that's all over and yesterday's also over and you're faced with today and you have to live in today, okay? And not next week either, you know, what you're gonna do. Okay? You're, you have to learn to live in the present. You are X years old. However healthy you were in the past, that's over. You know, uh, what's going to happen next week isn't going to happen today. And you have to deal with the current moment and your current mind and stop living in the past and the future. You know, deal with the present. And that's an important part of meditation. Okay? It's important to deal with the present. 23 hours a day so that you're able to do it when you meditate. If, you, if your mind is wandering for 16, 17 waking hours about the good old days, uh, then when you sit down and meditate, that's all you're going to be able to think about. Forget it. You know, deal with your body as it is now. Uh, deal with your mind as it is now. And, and get to paradise or get to heaven now. Okay? Just like this. Right. That's the first one. Second one. Say nisem. Nisem. Nisem means thoughts of. Nisem means to harm. Sem means thoughts. It means to think about how much you dislike somebody. All right. Think about someone you dislike. This is the other pole. There's a polarity. Gopa is one extreme. Nirsem is the other extreme. Gopa is much more common. Okay? 90% of your day is exerted in the pursuit of pleasure, of things that you like. And that's Gopa. That's channel surfing. Okay? And then maybe 10% of your day is spent in active irritation or dislike of other people. Okay? Now some people may be 85, 15, or Okay, 92, 8, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're all basically the same. If you're in the desire realm, you have 95% of the same mental afflictions that I have. Okay? Just by virtue of being here. You couldn't have got here unless you did. Okay? The fact that you're here proves it. Unless you're a deity and I don't know who's a deity and who's not. Okay? <clears throat> so, nirsem means if you're in a state of meditation and you think of one person that you don't like, it destroys it like boom. Like, you can wander through 
your high school years and come back to your object of meditation ten minutes later? You can do that. But you have nirsem for one minute, you might as well just get up and go to work. You might as well go early and get some overtime. Because you won't be able to meditate. Okay? A few minutes of active dislike of another person. You know, I can't believe what they said to me yesterday. I really hate it, you know. Then you cannot get back into meditation within probably half an hour, 45 minutes. It's impossible, okay? So, so you have to avoid the point of Aryanagarjana and of Jetsongkhapa when he comments on Aryanagarjana. Why does he comment on Aryanagarjana? Why did Jetsongkhapa talk about these five? You guys know. You just don't remember. In the Bodhisattva vows, you have a Bodhisattva vow to avoid these five. You swore. Remember those little ceremonies with all the flowers and stuff? You know, you swore to give up these five. Okay, the five obstacles to meditation. And then Jetson Kappa, uh, when he wrote his commentary, and we taught it in the Bodhisattva vows course, he was adamant that they didn't just mean during meditation sessions. 24 hours a day, you Bodhisattvas have sworn to give up these five and to watch your mind for these five for 24 hours a day, mainly at work, okay, mainly with your family. Okay? So, Nusim, if you don't avoid dislike of other people 23 hours a day, don't, don't think that one hour is going to be some kind of vacation or something. Okay? You have to watch your mind all day long. You have to be in a semi-meditation all day long. And by the way, if you get there, it's very, very cool. It's very, very cool. And very good for Kirim. Those of you who know Kirim. It's easy to do Kirim if all day long you're doing these five. You see? If your mind is in a semi-samadhi all day long, then tantric practice during the day is, is a piece of cake. And it's fun. You know, it's like really sexy all day long. It's like really high all day long and amazing things happening to you. You cannot have a good Kirin practice all day long if you don't have Samadhi going on all day long. Okay? That's why you have to maintain these five. That's why it's a Bodhisattva vow. In the lower schools of Tantra, you don't take Tantric vows. You take Bodhisattva vows. And they are the Tantric vows. Okay? That's one of the things that distinguishes the four classes of Tantra. Okay? So, the point is that if you maintain these five all day long, then, then, then being in a state of Kirim and avoiding Tamil Nanshan is a piece of cake. If you don't know what those words mean, you need to have an initiation from Ken Rinpoche. Alright. Number three. Say, Mukni. Mukni. Mukpa is a, is a word in Tibetan that also means fog. And uh, it refers to a, sort of a drowsy state of mind. Okay? Sort of a sleep, not sleepy, but sort of... Uh, mukpa is after you've had a big meal, like, like three pieces of pizza, and you try to meditate right after that. Okay? Those of you who've tried it, <laughs> I have. That's mukpa. So it's sort of a dull, dullness. You can say dullness. Okay? It comes after uh, eating too much and, and things like that, okay? You, it's best to meditate 
in the morning when your stomach's been empty for maybe 12 hours. Okay? To try to eat and then meditate uh, is crazy. You can't. Okay? Unless you've got some kind of blood disorder or something where, you know, it goes... But a normal physiological condition. Uh, this is some kind of mental dullness. And it's brought on mainly by eating and, and things like that. Okay? Ni is the extreme of it. And that's not... Uh, Ni means to sleep or to get drowsy. Okay? So, I had a great meditation teacher once. I said, uh, you know, Lama, I, this is a very formal interview, and I'm before, at, at the lotus feet of this high being, you know, and I'm like, uh, oh, holy being, you know, I, I have trouble. What is your trouble, son? You know, and I said, I get sleepy during meditation. And he says, sleep during the night. <laughs> and uh, that's all he would say you know and uh, it means you can't meditate without enough sleep forget it just forget it you know people think they're going to be some big yogi the first day I said to Ken Rinpoche like how can I not eat and not sleep he said forget it you have to sleep okay just to not sleep properly, to not get the amount of sleep that you personally need, which is different for every person. You know, six, seven, eight, nine hours. Some people need 12, I guess. But uh, you must get enough sleep to meditate properly. And if you don't get enough sleep, you are dissing your bodhisattva vows, and you are dissing the Buddha, okay? Uh, you must feed yourself a proper amount. Regulate your food like a like a vow, you know what I mean? Just the amount of food that you need, and you must sleep enough. And if you think you're going to meditate with, by eating too much, or not sleeping enough, just forget it. Okay, Makal? No. Uh, you must get enough, enough sleep, okay? That's just one of the requirements for meditation. All right? You must be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Don't sleep too much, don't sleep too little. Don't eat too much, don't eat too little. This one is mainly referring to eating too much so that you have dull, a dull-minded state. Also, just physically, if your frame is too loaded down, if your frame is too heavy, you can't meditate well, okay? According to your own frame, you have to keep your weight and keep your food intake to, a, to what fits your physiology, which is different for each person. Too little is bad, too much is bad, okay? Too little sleep is bad, too much sleep is bad, okay? And you have to, it's your, you have sworn an oath to take care of these things, okay? It's part of your bodhisattva vow. Number four. By the way, I would throw in there exercising properly, okay? When you get up to big, 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 high level tantra, they make you exercise. Okay, I wasn't supposed to tell you that. All right. Uh, to, for your channels to work right and your chakras to be in good shape and everything else, you have to be physically fit, okay? And you can't practice Zorim if you're not physically fit. And if you don't get enough sleep, and if you eat too much or too little, if you abuse your body, uh, you won't be able to practice Tantra properly. And, and there's a vow about not abusing your body. You have to take, it's a, it sucks, it's a bad body, it's going to kill you, and you have to take good care of it. Because you have to use it until you reach your goal. Uh, then it will disappear, actually. And you'll get a new body. Okay? 
Very famous Panther line, you know. You ain't gonna have this kind of body when you get there. But you have to take good care of it in the meantime. Alright? Or you can't reach the highest goals of Tantra. Okay? So in there you have to, you know, you have to get fresh air, you have to keep those channels straight, open, bright. Okay? Number four. Say, Dubala, Dumba. Dubala, Dumba. Dupa normally means desire. In this case, it means objects of the senses. Okay? Uh, you know, TV, CD, uh, pizza, and, uh, you know, whatever. Okay, sex, I guess. Alright? But uh, the five senses and the object of those senses. And uh, this refers to being careful all day not to overload yourself in those areas, okay? Uh, be good, for example, to keep your eyes down as you walk around. They say, keep it about, you know, 10 feet ahead of you on the sidewalk. You don't need to see 90% of what you see in New York, okay? Seriously. And what it does, it puts mental images into your mind that crowd it the next morning when you're trying to meditate, okay? The more stuff you're intaking, each one makes an impression on your mind. And then your mind is like a cartoon show in the morning, okay? And you, you won't be able to concentrate. You know, traditionally, keep your eyes down. Don't, you know, look at everything that you could look at. Forget TV. Just throw it out. It's worthless. I said that on TV in Mongolia and the guy was... Okay, anyway. Uh, <laughs> okay. Second one, you know, music is beautiful. I love music. I was a musician, you know. It was one of the hardest things. But you cannot have a lot of music around and not be bothered by it the next morning, okay? So during the day, limit. Okay, listen to a few Neil Young CDs when you have to, but limit it. And then, because it, again, it comes back to you the next morning. There's nothing more frustrating than to be in a one-month tantric retreat and be hearing some pop song in your head, okay? And uh, what was the one? Uh, I don't even want to think about it. Uh, we heard it in the elevator and it was attacking me during meditation uh, then as far as food you know keep it, keep it very uh, down when you're in tantric retreats or things like that you'll find out you only need to eat once or maybe twice a day your poops go down to this I'm not kidding every day and uh, you just don't need it you know you just so, I mean, eat enough. When you're in New York City and you're working a job and you have a family, you need to eat more than that. But, but you know, control it and, and intake what you need and what you can use, okay? That's an object of the sentence. As far as sex, if you can be celibate, it's better. Uh, you'll find amazing, beautiful, incredible energy will come to you if you are. And I'm not saying something where you're like, uh, you know, you want to do it, but you don't want to do it, and you're making yourself crazy. I'm not talking about that. Happily, joyfully, healthfully, eventually just give it up, okay? But go, go through a nice uh, withdrawal, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, just cut it down, you don't do it so much, don't think about it so much, and then eventually you'll find out you don't need it at all, okay? And then you have all this incredible energy 
comes to you. You know, you can you can work like a madman and you can concentrate and it's not uh it's not a normal it, it's not what people think. It's not a a human need per se. It's something you're trained to do. Rinpoche used to sit with me, we would watch TV, he likes the mat, and then during the commercial they would show, uh, I remember this one advertisement, it was, a, it was like a four-year-old girl in a bikini walking down the beach, and there were like 12 four-year-old boys in lawn chairs, and they were all like that, and he said, that's really sick, you know, that they would inculcate that kind of thinking from such a young age. It's just a sign of your society that they're inculcating you they're brainwashing you, even in these little advertisements for something else, that you need this thing, and, and you don't. And I'm not saying you're evil or you're bad or you have to control this evil in you. Or something. It's not like that. It's a, it's a nice thing, it's a normal human urge, and slowly uh, reduce it in your life, and you get all this incredible energy, okay? So that's a part of meditation. Uh, you know, at least don't go overboard on it, you know? Make it... Give it its place, uh, do it uh, as you have to, but free up the rest of your day and your mind. You know, just say, okay, that's for that time on that day, and I'm not going to obsess on it. And then it'll increase your power of meditation. You'll be able to meditate really well. Just not to have all the sensory overload that you have in modern world. That's just one more thing that you don't need. And you slowly reduce it, and then your mind can meditate better, you can go inside better, okay? So work on it gradually, okay? Don't, don't do it in a frustrated way, okay? Like, <laughs> okay. Number five. Tetzel. Especially if you do retreats or meditate, you know, if you spend a week or a month, try to stay celibate totally, completely, okay? And it'll make it very powerful. Then I think sort of you'll see the benefit of it and you'll, you'll be more attracted to trying it more often. Okay, say tetzom. Tetzom. Tetzom means, uh, I call it lazy doubts. Okay. Why, why do I say lazy doubts? Healthy doubts are important. Okay. Uh, critically, thinking about Buddhism in a, in a critical way is important. Lord Buddha said, and it's one, to me one of the most attractive things about Buddhism. He said, question everything I say. Ask me questions. Attack what I say. Rip it apart. If you're not satisfied, don't follow it. And don't accept it. Okay? So this cannot be referring to that. You see what I mean? This is referring to lazy doubts. Okay? You just are too lazy to sit down for ten minutes and make a spiritual decision. Okay? The classic one in scripture is, is your Lama a Tantric Buddha or not? Make up your mind. Get off the fence. You know what I mean? All the scriptures say he or she is. And, and you choose to say he or she is when you feel like it, and when you don't feel like it, they're just a normal schmuck. You know, make up your mind. <laughs> That's a, I'm not asking you to do that one right now. But, but with, but with easier ones, you know what I mean? Like, are you going to practice or not? Are you going to really meditate for a day or not? And you keep wimping out. You keep saying, oh, maybe 45 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. Oh, I really should do an hour. And then you don't decide. You don't make up your mind. You don't analyze the question 
of is an hour of meditation a day vital for my very existence? And you go from day to day not meditating or meditating for 45 minutes or 30 minutes or something like that. That's Tetsom. You see what I mean? You didn't make up your mind whether this is something vital for your very existence or not. So you keep, you keep sitting on the fence, the meditation fence. Oh, next week, next month, next time I feel like it. Not when I don't feel like it. Not when it's too hot, too cold, I'm too tired, I had too much sleep. I had too much to eat, I didn't have enough to eat. I am busy or I'm not too busy. And they're all excuses not to meditate. Make up your mind. Get off the fence. You see what I mean? And there's many spiritual decisions like that. Okay, that's just an example. So Tetsom is to allow continued doubts in your mind that you should have figured out ten years ago. Okay? And you and then you kinda of figure it out and then you lose it and then you doubt again and then you waste your time again and then this is the best way to waste your life. You keep make up your mind, you know. Is this guy a good teacher or not? If not, leave. If he is, stay and do what he says. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Just make up your mind. Don't sit on the fence, you know. Okay? Do a meditation on it. Chegong. Analytical meditation. You know, is this the right thing for me to do or not? Should I meditate an hour a day or not? If it is, then make up your mind and do it. Okay? Uh, to continue to waffle is called tetum. Okay? Uh... That completes my sales job on two points. Why you should do a daily meditation session? Deep. Because you ain't going to see emptiness otherwise. Secondly, uh, why you should maintain a meditative state of mind all day long. You're half in samadhi all day long. You might move a little slower than other people. You're kind of happy all day long. By the way, that's a nice side effect. It is not the goal, regardless of what Hare Krishna say or whatever. It's not the goal to be sort of happy all day long. But it's nice, isn't it? You know? It is nice to have a semi-samadhi state of mind all day long. It, uh, incidentally, it helps your work. If you're a businessman, or you're a writer, or you're a painter, or you're anything else, if you stay in this half-samadhi all day long, everything goes better. Everything is incredible. Okay? Uh, then, by the way, you don't get mental afflictions. It's the best safeguard to screwing up your day with an incident of anger or jealousy or something like that. You are constantly in a state of samadhi all day long. Because you're watching food, music, sleep, thinking about too many things, not living in the present, disliking other people, having unresolved doubts that you could have resolved, okay? And you keep your mind free of those, and then you're in this kind of Samadhi all day, and if you want to be a businessman, you're going to be the best. And if you want to be an artist, you're going to be the best. And it's just a better way to live, okay? It's mainly for us, it, it refers to cutting down on your sensory intake, okay? Knowingly, purposely, okay? Uh, last thing. There's a beautiful line in the chapter on meditation. I think it's halfway through the chapter. And uh, Winston should put it in the Arizona thing. But it says, uh, I forget what it says exactly, but it's like, we are happy in the forest uh, with no one around us but trees and wild animals. And we live our days in peace. Our house is a flat rock under which we dig a hole and, you know, meditate. And we don't have any other clothes and we don't have any other family and we don't have any other house and we're just happy. 
and we meditate all day long, you know, and it's quiet out in the wilderness, you know. And then there's this little jog, and it says, hey, but what are we going to meditate about? You know, and, and then uh, Shantideva, Master Shantideva uses that as an excuse to launch into the most profound teaching he ever gave, okay, which is Dakshin Yamje, okay. In the middle of the chapter on meditation, he launches into purely artificially, right? Hey, what are we going to meditate about, by the way? Oh, how about Dakshin Yamche? Okay. Which happens to be the most powerful teaching maybe ever given. <laughs> Say Dakshin Yamche. Dakshin Yamche. Dak means me. Shen means other people. Nyamde means reverse them, exchange them, exchanging self and others, exchanging self and others. Okay? I'm going to teach you a very practical method called from his teachings uh, in three steps. Okay? Very simple. The sergeant is back there telling me I have to stop now, so it won't be very long. And uh, very, very simple. Okay? People ask me, is there some kind of meditation I can do that will make me happy immediately? Yeah, Dakshin Yamje. Okay, the karma ripens in about half a day or something. Okay, it, it, instantaneous spiritual fast food. Okay, uh, and I'm not kidding. It's just so profound that it works right away. If, if nothing else, in, if you don't ever do anything else in Buddhism, do Dakshin Yamje. It's easy, it's cheap. It works right away. It makes you happy the rest of your life. Okay? First part of the three, I call Jampa method. Jampa Lungrik is this little round ball of a monk out in Howell, New Jersey, who you know. But he's been trained in Sarah Monastery by Geshe Lothar and other great holy beings. Dakshin uh, Yamje. On a very personal, immediate, practical level. Meaning, when you walk in the kitchen at Rashi Gempeling, he's spying on you. He's watching you. He's seeing, what do you like? What do you want? And he follows your eyes. The eyes are the mirror of the soul. Okay? You follow a person's eyes for three minutes, you know what they want. You see what I mean? And he's spying on you. You walk in, he's like, oh, hi, how are you? You know, and, and he's watching your eyes. You look at the stove, you look at the kettle, you look at the tea instead of the coffee, you look at the refrigerator where the milk would be, you glance on the table where there's candies and chocolate chip cookies, and you're looking at the cookies. And then he says, oh, please sit down, you know. And then suddenly there's this hot tea with milk, with sugar, and the cookies are in front of you. And, and you think it's just coincidence. You see what I mean? Uh, he's, he's made it a, a goal of his life to master the art of finding out what you want and giving it to you without you being aware that he's doing it. You see what I mean? And, and that's the first part of Dakshin Yamje. Observation of other people's likes and dislikes and then supplying it to them without them even knowing it. Transparently. In software they call it transparent. You don't even know the software is there. It just does what you want. You see what I mean? And you are just silently, quietly, transparently 
giving other people what you know they like because you've taken five minutes to think about it, which is rare. You see what I mean? You're like, what does this guy like? What does he look at? What kind of clothes does he like? What kind of thing does he like? What kind of food does he like? What kind of tea does he like? What does he want me to say right now? You see, things like that. And, and you take it as a goal of your life to you Sherlock Holmes, you know, about finding out what other people like and then supplying it to them and they never know you're doing it. Okay? I read a Dear Abby column one day. She said, do something nice for somebody that they don't know you're doing. You know, and, and the Boy Scouts say that too. It's, it's really Dakshin Yamji. That's the first step of Dakshin Yamji. By the way, is there still a distinction between you and them? Yeah. You're here, and they're there, and you're watching them. Okay? That distinction is going to break down as we go through the three. Okay? Second part is uh, put your mind in their body. It's just like second level Dakshin Yamji. Okay? And it, oh, and watch you. Okay? So it's like this. When we taught this in Mongolia, the translator finally broke down. You know what I mean? Okay. So Ellie's sitting here, or Marie Placide. I put my mind in Marie Placide's body. Okay, so now I'm looking at what? Geshe Michael is standing up there teaching. Now, what is she thinking? You see? It's, it's putting your mind in, in the other person's body. So she's trying to pay attention now. And she's like, and, and she's like, um, I wonder if he's going to stop or if I'm going to make it home on time tonight. You know, I, I wonder if there's any good refreshments. You know, I wonder what's happening in Arizona. I wonder if he's ever going to give me that appointment I'm asking about. I wonder if he's ever going to talk to me about being a nun or not, you know, and, and stuff like that. And you put yourself in their body. You're, you put your mind in their body and you look at you and you ask, what do you want from you? You see what I mean? What, does, what do I, Marie Placide, want from Geshe Michael? What do I want him to say? What do I want him to do? What do I want him to think? What do I want him to... And then you just practice that. This is a very holy meditation to do all day long. Okay? It's really good in the morning when you do your meditations. Pick somebody, anybody, and do Dakshin Yamde. What do they want when they look at you? Okay? It may be that they want you to leave the room, and then that's okay. You can do that too. Okay. <laughs> they never have to know. All right. Number three. Uh, I call it the rope thing. Okay. By the way, in step number two, the distinction between me and her is getting a little bit blurred, right? You know, when I was doing it in Mongolia, I was saying, okay, look, I'm in Batbolt's body. I'm Batbolt looking at Michael and and Batbolt wants from Michael, and what do I want from me? And the guy's going, you know, <laughs> how do I translate that? You try to translate that from Shantideva's work, it's very confusing. You know, me, you, him, okay? Rope thing, then we'll stop, okay? Just go to somebody else, imagine you have this magical rope, and you put it around both of you, and you decide, I am now one person with four legs, two hands, two heads. Okay? Just decide. Choose anybody. Okay? And just decide there is no me in you. Now it's just us. Okay? Or me. But now I'm just twice as big. Okay? I, when I go shopping, I have to buy two pairs of shoes. One man and one woman's pair. You know, I need a pants and a dress. You know what I mean? When I eat my food, I have one fork and it goes into two mouths. 
And I am one body. You see what I mean? I am. We are one body. And just decide it with somebody. Break down the distinction between me and you. 100%. Flatly just break it down. Now I have to, my salary has to spread, or my lack of salary has to spread to, to two people. Okay? Now when I do anything, eat food, order clothes, do anything, go to the bathroom, anything, I have two minds to consider. I have four arms to consider. I have four legs to consider. I have to take care of those legs and those arms and that head as well as I take care of this head and these arms and those legs. Then people object to Master Shantideva and the Irish got all hot at me. You know, they said, yeah, but man, you're going to run out of money pretty soon, you know. And uh, look, the human mind is unbelievable. If you really want to do it, you can do it. What you call myself is a projection of your past karma. It's as artificial as everything else. It's just a decision. You know, when you have a baby, suddenly you have to take care of this thing and you don't hesitate. No mother in the world almost hesitates. They just think, well, now I'm just twice as big. Now I have to take care of both of us. You see, I mean, you suddenly just got bigger, okay? And then the other example I give, there's a guy out in New Jersey called Rupjor. He's Mongolian. He got gangrene on his foot because he had diabetes. He refused to have his leg cut off. The doctors told him he had to do it. I was the translator. I'm trying to convince him to cut his leg off. He would not do it. He said, I'd rather die than have my leg cut off. Ten years later, he still didn't have it cut off. And his foot was this big green mass, you know. And they kept giving him antibiotics. One day he decides, okay, that's it. You can cut it off, you know. Something in his mind changed. He divorced himself from that foot. You see what I mean? His me got shorter by two feet or something. Okay? I'm not kidding. He just made a decision that me would be less than it used to be. So the border between you and somebody else is artificial. It's just a decision. And the one you got stuck with from your past karma sucks. It doesn't work. It's counterproductive. It causes all your suffering. Okay? The, your past karma is forcing you to believe that your self ends at the end of your fingers. That's just primitive. That's just really bad karma that you got stuck with that. People in the desire realm are stuck with this idea that me ends at my fingers. And somehow, for some stupid reason, I'm not supposed to take care of her as well as I take care of me. And I'm supposed to believe that that's natural. Because my past karma is making me think that way. My past karma is making me think that I end here and she starts there. And my past karma has even created the words me and her in my language. You see what I mean? They don't have those words in a Buddha field. They don't have the word me and, and them. You see what I mean? That's a, that's a kind of primitive idea. And it hurts you. It's the stupidest idea you can have. It's the source of all your suffering. I mean, I am here, you start there, and so there's a difference between me being cold and you being cold. You see what I mean? That's just, it's a mistake foisted on you by your past karma. So just reject it. Just flatly reject it. Okay? Say, I don't believe that anymore. At the beginning, start small. Start with something you can handle. What does Master Shantideva say? Your vegetables. Like, my dessert, I wouldn't share like that. But, okay. <laughs> but the asparagus, you know, and the, 
Especially that slimy stuff. What is that? Lady fingers. Okra. My okra. Start with something you're not so attached to. Okay. He says that. He says, start with vegetables. Start with something small and say, there is no distinction between me and this other person. And, and take one fork and feed both mouths and practice it for a while. And that's doctrine, that is the ultimate one. Break, decide that the distinction between you and others has, is a mistake that was foisted on you by your past karma. And reject it. Because it's the source of all your suffering. Just reject it flatly. There is no difference between feeding this hole and that hole. You know, they both have to get fed. And share food with somebody for 10 years or something. Buy your meals together, take a fork, and practice putting it into two mouths until you get good at it. And just forget about me and them, okay? It'll be the source of all your happiness. The karma of thinking that way produces something as big as a Buddha paradise. You see? You cannot maintain this sense of me as being this discreet skin bag uh, and collect the kind of karma you need to get to a Buddha paradise. It's impossible. To collect that much karma to get into a Buddha paradise, you have to actively practice breaking down the distinction between yourself and other people. Okay? That makes it a lot easier to be a bodhisattva. The sergeant says I have to stop here. Okay? So we'll do a little bit more. I'll take maybe some questions next week. Okay? After your break, uh, please get into your groups, okay? And, uh, and then we'll do a short wrap-up at the end, okay? Okay, last... Uh, you know, at the end uh, of this review course, at the end of the class, I've been taking like five minutes to talk about the future of Buddhism in America. And... Uh, we had a lot of talks with Lama Sopa when he came, and uh, it sort of dawned on all of us that, uh, that now you are one of the venerable uh, Dharma groups in the country. You see, I mean, I mean, it occurred when Lama Sopa and I had talks together that uh, now uh, this is one of the larger groups in the country. You know, maybe the largest or second. But anyway, all of the students who are involved with our classes around the country. Um, and so, what Buddhism becomes in the United States will be shaped by uh, people like you, whether you like it or not. Um, and so, we've been talking about a lot of different issues. Uh, we've been talking about what is it you're going to teach? How do you certify a teacher? Uh, what kind of meditation should people do? What kind of retreats should people do? Uh, how should they keep their finances? Should you charge people or not? And the answer is... No. Not. <laughs> you know, at all costs. And anything else, you know. Uh, and so we've been talking about issues like that. I, the, the issue I'd like to talk about tonight is Thaksam Namdak. It comes from the reading, right? It comes... We talked about it already. It's the willingness to take personal responsibility that people get dharma, okay? And uh, I'll tell you how uh, Palma and I started this thing uh, on 39th Street in this uh, little basement. With, uh, we went and bought six chairs at Ikeda in New Jersey and we fit all the chairs and the table and the cabinet and her and me in one Honda Accord. And, uh, and that was it. 
and we brought it back and we started. And uh, I think uh, the point of, of that exercise so far up to now has been that we were willing to go to work all day to make the money, to make the rent for the place, and to pay for all the binders, and to pay for all the printing, and we kept the place going for free. Uh, because we were willing to even work all day uh, to pay for the other people who came. And when I, I was in California, and uh, the FPMT monks and nuns were there, and they were sitting, I remember, on Lama Yeshi's stupa platform, and I was teaching this class, and here's three rows of monks and nuns, and one of them raises a hand and says, uh, what do you think about the problem of the lack of support for Western Sangha? You know, like, we don't get paid, nobody helps us, we don't get even a bowl of food, right? And I said, I have an opinion on that question, uh, which is that all of you should go to work and uh, take the money and start Dharma centers and pay for the non-Sangha to come to class. Is that okay? And, uh, and there is this... <laughs> and I do believe that. Uh, what I mean is, at some point in your life, you will become a teacher. And I encourage you to have this attitude that if you are in a position to teach others, which means you understand the Dharma more than others, or you appreciate the Dharma more than others, then you should appreciate it to the extent that you would pay the expenses of the place until the other people caught up with you. You see what I mean? So, I think it has to be this attitude that uh, it's your honor to support the Dharma, and it's your honor to pay for the notebooks and the printing and the rent and the overhead projector, and the refreshments, and everything else. If, if you understand Dharma at all, if you want to be a teacher at all, Hasam Namda, you know, this is my great honor to be able to uh, support it. And if I have to go to work all day to make that money, then that's fine. And that's the way it'll be. And that's just Hasam Namda. Okay, later, you'll get complaints. The cookies aren't good enough, they're too cheap. Uh, there's not enough room in this auditorium. Uh, I can't hear so well. Uh, I didn't get reading six. You know what I mean? And no one will thank you. You know what I mean? It's not like they'll come and say, gee, you worked for 16 years in this cruddy corporate job just so we could have a place to have class. You know, people won't say that. They'll, they'll just come and complain. Then later they'll complain about what you teach, what you look like, who you hang out with, and stuff like that. Hasan Nandak means I don't care. This is important to do. I'm willing to do it at my expense, personal expense, time expense, financial expense. People will take pot shots at you. I don't mind. You know, it's some kind of uh, ningru. Ningru means heart bone. And there's supposed to be this little bone in the middle of your heart, the Tibetans say. And it just means, you know, I'm willing to do it even if no one else thinks it's important. Okay, and, and when you get into the Dharma business, you'll be amazed. You know, like we're trying to save Tibetan literature. So we went to these monasteries and we said, uh, how would you like us to teach you to type in your own uh, textbooks? You know, your 200,000 books that are the essence of Tibetan culture. And they're like, how much are you going to pay us? And we're like, do you need to get paid? 
said, sure, you're a foreigner, right? And he's like, okay. And what I mean to say, and then you contact the Tibetan government, could we get some books to type in? No. Uh, By the way, I'm not trying to break all my vows. I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm just saying. it's just a, an example. Like you're trying to you're trying to do something for somebody, and they're just not interested. You see what I mean? I mean, frankly, there's nobody in the world who cares about those books enough to pay for it and to have them input. There's almost nobody. And uh, but you just do it because you have to do it. Okay? You see what I mean? And if you have to go work or you have to go grub money or embarrass yourself in front of rich people all day to try to get the money. You do it, you know what I mean? And that's Vasamnanda, okay? And I, what I mean is, it's an important element of Dharma service, okay? Uh, three jewel store. Pelma didn't get paid for the last four years or something. You know, like we're always next month maybe. You know what I mean? And you just have to decide in your mind that it's important to do, and you have to do it. You don't have a choice. It's totally improper for you to sit here and get the benefits of class after class after class after class and reading after reading. Those readings take hundreds of hours of people's work and then not pass it on to other people. You know, you're sort of under obligation now to be the next chain in the lineage. And to be the chain effectively might mean that you have to support it yourself and you have to go out and find the funding and you have to... It's important. Things like the Three Jewels, uh, things like ACI, things like the computer project, those are some of the most valuable things in the world. And at some point, you're going to have to say, like the Morris came from Colorado and just decided, it's our responsibility, we're going to do the correspondence course. And they sit there and they do it, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of notebooks. They sit there in the dungeon under three jewels and they do it. And they just they didn't. I didn't ask them to do it. They just did it. You know, they just decided this is important. Uh, we're getting fed dharma, so we have to help other people get fed dharma. You know, so at some point, it's gotta come into your mind that this thing is precious, that someone has worked very hard to give it to you, and now you have to work hard and give it to other people. And at, and at some point, uh, you have to think. You know, what can I do now to, to feed the next person in the food chain? You know, like Dr. Sykes has got a nice little class up it. Uh, what's that place called? Caravan of Dreams? I still didn't get any vegan desserts. Uh, no, at some point you got to think, you know, and as I understood, he popped the money for the course materials and stuff. Tried to steal some other ones, but we caught him. And, uh, no, and, uh, at some point, no, you, you, in your mind, you have to, you have to make this decision, okay? Hasamnanda means, I don't care if nobody helps me, I don't care if I have to pay for everything myself, I don't care if I have to spend my time and no one comes to the dungeon to help me. Uh, they just come to complain that course number three, tape number four is blank, you know. <laughs> uh, and at some point, you just have to say, okay, that's, that's now my responsibility. And, and and I've been the beneficiary of this attitude, and now I'm going to be the next lineage holder of this attitude. So think about it. You know, everyone applauds when we say free classes. But when they see that little plastic box, they avoid it, you know. And uh, 
you have to, at some point you have to, you have to take responsibility to other, that other people get the Dharma. And, and if, if Palma goes away for three years, somebody has to say, okay, hey, we got to keep this thing open. You know, that's how I met the Dharma. I walked into that stupid Three Jewels, you know, and there's this mutt there, and then we started talking, and, you know what I mean, and, and you guys have to take responsibility. God's still the same thing. These classes, the same thing, you know. You have to think that somebody put out effort to make the place for you, and then now you have to put out the same kind of effort for other people. My concept is smaller groups, neighborhood uh, meetings, where you do courses together and stuff like that. But, you know, there's going to have to be a certain idea among each of you that, okay, maybe in my apartment for a couple months we could do that. You see what I mean? Like, I could put up the apartment and Michael Wick could come and teach and, you know, you have to think like that, okay? That's all. Hassan Nambak. Okay, we'll do a short prayer. Okay. <coughs> Thank you.